The following lecture was produced by the Rhode Island Student Assistance Services with funding from the Rhode Island Department of Health. Hi there. Welcome to the Rhode Island Youth Mental Health Webinar Series. This week's topic, Youth Suicide Prevention is Everyone's Business. What Parents Need to Know. Presented by Lee A. Raposa. Remember, your feedback is important to us. Please fill out the survey in the description below for your chance to win a $100 gift card. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Thank you all for being here. I'm Sarah Dinklage, the Executive Director of Rhode Island Student Assistance Services. RISAS is a nonprofit agency that provides substance use prevention and mental health support services in Rhode Island middle and high schools. This is the first in a series of webinars on the unique role of parents and families in fostering resilience and mental health in children. This series is brought to you by the Rhode Island Department of Health. We're very proud to bring you our first webinar, which features Lee Raposa, our Youth Suicide Prevention Manager. Lee is a licensed independent clinical social worker and has been working in the field of youth suicide prevention for the past 11 years. So without further ado, I'm gonna turn it over to Lee. Thank you so much, Sarah. So thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to talk about suicide prevention and to empower all the parents and colleagues and educators and community personnel to embrace that concept of what we put in the title, which is that suicide prevention is everyone's business. Use suicide prevention, it's everyone's business. What parents need to know. So we're gonna do some brief introductions. We're gonna talk about self-care and all the different ways that we're modeling self-care to our kids or any youth that are in our life. So I do wanna mention before I go any further that anything we learned here tonight or today is transferable to any other population that you are, are in. So if you are an educator, uh, it could be your students, it could be um, family members. Uh, we are gonna focus on youth suicide prevention, but like I said, anything that we learn here today is also applicable to other populations that might be in your life about self-care, the importance of modeling positive self-care and what happens if we're not doing self-care, power of connection. There's certain types of ways that we connect suicide prevention to the community uh, using social media. And so I'm going to introduce a few of the ways that, you know, we use Instagram or different types of social media campaigns to get out the awareness or be able to have the conversation about suicide prevention. The scope of the problem, a lot of times when we do these trainings, parents say, you know, um, I don't really think that's an issue in my community or in our state. And for those of you who are on presentation tonight nationally, so I'm going to address that. We're going to talk about myths and facts about suicide. So there's a lot of myths out there and we're going to try to debunk them with some facts. Most people who attend these trainings say it would be really helpful for me to learn more about the situational and behavioral warning signs, things that I should look for either in my child or within youth in my life when maybe a young person is not specifically stating things that um, lead you to believe that they're um, thinking about suicide, but more maybe what's going on in their life, the cues. So we're gonna discuss those. And then the referral process, which is really just, who are you gonna call? Your home, there's a, a day where there's a, um, you know, a hybrid, they're at home versus in school, you know, that specific day and you're really concerned where you're going to reach out to and what your resources are. So we're going to look at those from a micro level, which is typically in your community or school-based level, and then we're actually going to branch out and look at some national resources as well. 
And then, like I said earlier, anything that kind of comes up throughout the training, please feel free to say um, any questions that you might have or any comments in the chat. So we're going to start out by talking about what's your self-care. So what's your self-care? There might be people in the audience who love to cook or garden, or you go for a run, or you might be in recovery and you go to meetings. I personally use uh, animals as self-care as far as even walking our pets. So this, these are our three, our three dogs, uh, Zippy, Jack, and Kingston, all with very different personalities. They give me a lot of purpose and uh, really relax me and ground me, as you can imagine. So I think it's just important to kind of take a quiet inventory of what your self-care is. And then try to think about what would happen if you didn't do some of those things. And we're talking about anything from basic hygiene to sleep hygiene, meaning you know how you're sleeping or your, your sleep, if you have sleep disturbances that come up, hydration, and then things like you know exercise, if you read, meditate, and what would happen if you didn't do the, those things for self-care. Most people say that they would burn out or they would be less effective um, in their jobs or with their family. And then the other piece that I wanted to talk about with pets is uh, if you have children, you know that they, and specifically if you even have infants in your life at this point, uh, they're not necessarily using their language or they don't have the language to talk about the needs that they have, so they're using their behaviors. So I try to use the analogy that our pets are very similar to kids and, and people in general, where they're not using words necessarily to advocate for something that they need, but as you can probably see from these three faces, they're always advocating for a cookie or a treat just by their little face or their little tail. Or, and so our kids are doing the same thing. A lot of times they're not necessarily saying, mom, I feel really anxious today on a level of one to 10, I'm a 10. Or they might say, you know, they might not say that they feel depressed that day or that they're, um, that they're really more sad than normal. Um, and they're having a lot of ups and downs, they might just have a change in appetite, a sleep, a change in sleep. Their behaviors start to share the story of how they're feeling emotionally. So the other reason why we did the title is Suicide Prevention is Everyone's Business is that I really want to stress that uh, I think 100% of the folks that are on this presentation today, if they saw a young child uh, who was in harm's way, maybe, you know, going to chase a ball into the street and potentially you know, be hit by a car, we would do everything in our power to preserve the safety, the physical safety of that child. This is a presentation where we're empowering you to do everything you can to preserve the emotional safety of a child. And that's why we called it, it's everybody's business, because it truly is. Just like physical safety, emotional safety is just as important. So the power of connection. This is a meme that family member shared with me the other day, and I thought it was uh, really just kind of funny. I'll read it out loud. I'm here for you, thanks. I'm going through a tough time right now, so it means a lot. And sorry, I lost all my contacts, who's this? <laughs> this is your Uber driver, I'm here to pick you up. Oh, so the reason why I put this in here is, uh, yes, that's funny, but if you can tell that individual, the, the, the rider, uh, really responded to that first, that first kind of reach out, I'm here for you. And you could tell they were kind of um, touched that somebody had thought of them, and they're going through and they shared even, I'm going through a lot, so this means a lot. Sometimes our kindness or our connection can be intentional, but I feel like oftentimes it's unintentional. It might be that just very kind gesture of, of holding a door for someone, maybe just, um, I don't know, paying for them in, in front of the, the coffee drive-through or a smile if you're going for a walk. I usually try to be someone that smiles first 
just to kind of make a connection and make it comfortable for that other person to smile back. And you never know, you might start talking about the weather and that might lead to, you know, having a really tough day today. So I, I say do the same thing with your kids and you never, you never know, you know, the power of the connection um, and the influence of connection that you might have. We talked uh, a little bit about how I was going to mention social media campaigns. There are a few. Uh, September is National Suicide Prevention Month. So we are recording this presentation in September. Some of you might see this at other months. We talk about hashtag be the one too, which is a social media campaign through the National Association of Suicide Prevention. Hashtag be here tomorrow, which is a social media campaign uh, that started with Kevin Hines, who is uh, an attempt survivor. And he actually made a documentary called Suicide the Ripple Effect. And then hashtag Stop Suicide, which is the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. That is actually their media campaign. The reason why I mention media campaigns is that we might not always be in the same virtual space, I'll say space, as our kids or our young people. Uh, but sometimes if we just post something or if we like something on social media, it sends a message just kind of like bumper stickers used to do or the magnets that are on, you know, used to be on our, our refrigerators that says something that is either important to us or that we're familiar with or we have knowledge about or we have awareness about. It actually sends a message that we're comfortable talking about these, these topics. So that's kind of why I like to make people aware. And I always ask at the end of the presentation if folks could either tweet out one of these or like it on a social media platform uh, that, again, you never know the power of a way to connect. It might be through a virtual connection. We do have support for survivors. So support for survivors means there's two different categories of survivors. Survivors can be folks where there's been a loss, either in a community or in a family, and we are the folks left behind after there's been a loss and the grief and bereavement process can be very complicated and we can really benefit from having support of others. Obviously, nobody's specific survivor story is ever going to be the same. Uh, but the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention has resources for survivors. And then there's also attempt survivors. Attempt survivor, uh, survivors are folks who have made an attempt and uh, have lived to tell their story of recovery and hope. So that's why I use the example of Kevin Hines, who actually was an attempt survivor off the Golden Gate Bridge years ago, and now he lives to tell his story of recovery and hope, uh, and specifically his recovery with, with mental health. And then the Handbook for Survivors is a resource that we actually try to make available for families and survivors who might have had a loss by suicide in, in their community or in their family. The scope of the problem. So we are a Rhode Island based based nonprofit agency, so I am going to use Rhode Island data, uh, but nationally, suicide is the second leading cause of death for the population of 15 to 24 year olds. So our, our young people, our adolescents, uh, it's the second leading cause of death. Within our schools, middle school and high school students have reported that they've been either sad or hopeless for two or more weeks. So what we want to do and why we do these trainings is that we want to reduce the attempts. We want to get to our kids before that two weeks when we're now at the crisis. We want to recognize the warning signs, the behavioral cues, and some things that might be going on with that child that we can intervene early in order for it to not necessarily escalate to that two-week mark or, or more. We do consider suicide as a preventable form of death. I do make the point to always say that there's probably, you know, I think there's 80 or so people on the presentation today. There are survivors actually in the audience tonight and that 10% of folks who do die by suicide, there's 90% that do die by suicide who have an underlying mental health condition, and 10% that might be outliers or, or folks that didn't necessarily have a diagnosis but were struggling. So I will say that that's why we do these trainings is to try to reduce the attempt rate. So everybody on this 
training today is, or the, in the audience, is a gatekeeper. So think about all the gatekeepers that are in our worlds. You as parents, definitely influential gatekeepers. Family members, I talk about with, when I do trainings with sibling or with youth, I talk about the power of the sibling relationship as a gatekeeper. Some of your youth might be employed. Uh, your educators, basically all the adults in the school community, any any teens or peers, anybody that your your children interface with after school, program staff, their pediatrician, social workers, and then I try to say, you know, who are their gatekeepers in the virtual world, and that the you're a gatekeeper as well for your for your child, and it's important to recognize that safety is is also a responsibility in the virtual world, but I also try to see. Who else are their gatekeepers in the virtual world? Is it someone that they're on online gaming with? Is it somebody that they're on, you know, Snapchat with or, or instant messenger? And it's uh, a pretty consistent relationship. So I always try to identify with kids, who are your gatekeepers? Who are the adults that you trust that are in your life that you see either virtually or in person on, person on a regular basis? And then when they're struggling, I go back and remind them who those gatekeepers are. And for those parents that are out there that are struggling, meaning like you're raising, you know, teenagers and, and families and, you know, you have extended family, believe it or not, 99% of students when I've done any kind of either interviews or focus groups, mention that at least one parent is somebody that they go to. So I know sometimes we feel like they dismiss us, but they do identify us as gatekeepers. So I'm not going to give the answers to uh, this other slide, but we're going to talk about myths and facts for suicide. So if you can just kind of have a um, space in your head right now. I'm going to ask a couple questions and you can say myth or a fact in, you, in your head. So suicides happen more often around the holiday season. Is that a myth or a fact? Suicides happen more often between Thanksgiving and the beginning of the year. Is that a myth or a fact? It turns out it is actually a myth. They actually increase more often in the spring. Are, there's probably, there's many theories about that, but we are more connected. So I'm gonna use that C word of connection a few more times throughout the presentation. We are more connected around the holiday season, even in this virtual world. Um, and then sometimes we're you know, out and about shopping or we're going to gatherings or there might be some sort of you know, Yankee swap or something at work, um, but we are more connected around the holidays. We have found that with the lack of sunlight and when the sunlight comes out in the spring, people have more energy to act on the suicidal thoughts that they might have had around that uh, winter season when they might not have had as much emotional energy. So the next myth or fact, if you ask a child if they're thinking about suicide, you have raised their, you've raised their uh, level of intent or their risk. So if you ask somebody if they're thinking about suicide, you've raised their threat level. Is that a myth or a fact? So it turns out it's a myth. So you probably know just yourself that if you've ever just had something going on in your life and somebody just says, hey, how are you doing? Are you okay? Just by asking a question. And in this case, if you're asking somebody if they're thinking about suicide, you have lowered their threat level just by asking and sending a message that you can tell something's going on and you care enough to explore what that is and that you're there for them for that answer and that you, you're comfortable with whatever they're going to answer. The next myth or fact Let's see, uh, suicidal kids keep their plans to themselves. Now this can be a, a kind of a hard myth or a fact. Suicidal kids keep their plans to themselves. What we have found is that about two to three weeks prior to an attempt, there's something going on with a student or with a young person or a child. And so we're gonna explore what some of those things could be, but they typically don't keep all their plans to themselves. Maybe they've said something in the past, maybe they 
have started to, you know, to take an interest in, you know, um, acquiring means or they start to write things or their drawings start to be a little bit more dark. Um, but typically two to three weeks, there's something going on. So we want to make sure that we're kind of aware of those signs and um, behavioral cues. So we'll explore those. And then the last myth or fact that I have is if there's a young person in your life who's constantly threatening suicide, miss, I'm going to die today. Miss, I want to die today. They are escalated. Oh, sorry. So the myth is, I almost gave the answer there. So if somebody is constantly threatening suicide, they are never going to do it. They're never going to attempt. Is that a myth or a fact? So it turns out that it is a myth. These are folks that are at a higher risk for attempting uh, suicide. And just like that slide that I showed earlier with our pets, these are folks that are advocating for an emotional pain or an emotional need by using their behaviors and oftentimes their words by saying that they are really struggling and they might want to die. So that's their way of getting on our radar so that we're concerned. So I just say take all warning signs seriously and anything that someone says seriously. So this next slide is that for parents who might have a, a child or young person in their lives who identifies as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, or I, which is intersex, these students or these young people might, so might be at higher risk for suicide if they're not having a positive questioning or coming out process somewhere in their lives. They might be extremely supported at home, extremely supported at school, extremely supported in the community. And those are all protective factors. Um, so these are students who actually, so I will say most people ask me what the I means and the I is intersex, which means uh, a child or a, a baby that's born with the sexies of both. So they might be born with breasts and uh, penis. Um, and those are things that now we actually delay assignment and they work with the medical, with the medical team about delaying assignment. So at this point, I'm just gonna pause and ask Sarah, are there any questions that I should stop and, and try to answer? Not at this point, unless someone wants to um, write something in now. Don't see any questions at this point. So now we're going to transition into what most parents say they want. They want, what's the signs? What do I look for? How do I just, how do I know that they're not just being a, you know, an everyday teenager that has mood swings and do I just feed into it or do I dismiss it? So we're going to talk about all those things right now. So I just say, please send a message to your child and you, you already do this through their parent. You're the person that keeps or people that keep them safe in the world emotionally and physically, just that you take everything seriously. I just don't underestimate the power of maybe being that one adult in their life that they feel takes them seriously. Um, and I don't want to miss an opportunity. So I usually just say, take, I take all signs seriously. I take everything you say seriously. And especially if we're talking about something like depression or anxiety or suicidality or you feeling, you know, desperate and hopeless. These are things I'm going to take seriously no matter what, and we're going to get you help and we're in this together. And you're going to notice that I'm going to start to use more we related language versus you. So some basic warning signs for suicide is if a, a young person is threatening to kill themselves or somebody else, they're looking for ways. So you might notice a browser history, or if you look at your, um, your child's text messages, which I'm sure a lot of you have expectations of privacy of sure, for sure, but if you're concerned, you, you've probably had a conversation about, um, you know, I'm going to look at things if I'm concerned. And uh, so if they start talking about death or writing about death or, you know, things like texting or blogging, really dark things. Substance use and abuse is a really important risk factor or warning sign. So you might have a young person in your life or you might have, you know, a, a child in your life and their friend you've noticed is 
started to use and abuse substances, and this is vaping. So this is anything from vaping to alcohol and drug use. Their brains aren't fully developed yet, and specifically with alcohol. Alcohol is a depressant. So if you have a child who has a depressed brain and they're not diagnosed and not getting help for that, the alcohol will actually exacerbate that depression. And kids, their, their brains aren't fully developed yet, so they might do things that they wouldn't normally do if they were sober. Um, their impulse control is different. Their decision-making can be impaired. So we really want to make sure that, especially if, so folks, if you're, you do have kids in schools, to make sure of who the resource is in the school that you could refer to. Uh, we, have we have student assistance counselors through the Rhode Island Student Assistance Program, which is also an evidence-based national organization um, in schools. So I would just check and see who those people are that you can refer to in the school if you're concerned. A student or a young person might start to feel hopeless. If anybody ever says that they feel hopeless, that is probably one of the biggest red flags for me. I immediately kind of drop everything and say, okay, what's going on? You might have a child who feels rage or anger and they've never been like that before. So we're also looking for changes. I know there's a lot that we're kind of sharing with you tonight. The one thing I wanna underscore is that you know your child. You know your child or your children better than anybody else. So if they have a change in their norm or their baseline, that's something that we really wanna address and talk about like why the change. And we'll get into that a little bit more. They might start to act reckless or engage in risky activities. And this can also be engaging in risky activities online. So I want to make sure that we're always talking about the virtual world and the in-person world. Uh, this child might say that they feel completely trapped, no way out, like they're in a room with no doors and no windows and no way out. They might start withdrawing from friends and family and just activities that they normally really like to do. And they might have dramatic mood changes. Now, this is the point where normally parents say, well, they're a teenager. They always have dramatic mood changes. So they probably have their own range of what the dramatic mood changes look like. So we're looking for changes. So behavioral warning signs. If you have a child in your life who's had a previous suicide attempt or a history of depression or mental health issues, this not, does not necessarily mean that they're gonna have another attempt or if that's an, any, an indicator of something that's gonna escalate again, but it is really important to note and to provide support. So I usually, when I'm working with students or kids, I say, you know, you've had a suicide attempt. It was last March. This is the end of February and March is coming up. How are you? You know, and especially if you know that it's a time of year where they've either had a loss and we're going to go down to that a little bit more. Um, but I always just kind of keep in the back of my mind if there's a student or a child that's had a previous attempt. Also, if a student or a child has access to means, so we talk about means as firearms or prescription drugs, we wanna make sure that uh, whenever we're always practicing uh, responsible gun ownership or firearm ownership, um, and also that we're limiting the amount of lethal medications that are in our home. And sometimes we might not be able to limit uh, as much as we'd like because we might have somebody in our family that requires medication. Maybe we have somebody who um, has pain management or a chronic health issue. So we just kind of ask that um, you, you look up, you know, sometimes even on local retailers or um, you can find lock boxes. So we just want to remove the access to means. A child might start to give away prized possessions. There might be a little boy who loves his uh, Pokemon cards or a little girl and they start giving them away. That would be really unlike that child. Or um, I always give the example of an adult that was in my life years ago who had borrowed my uh, lawnmower um, because his was in the shop and that was in the summer. And he gave it back to me in the middle of the winter, which was really just not congruent with the seasons. 
And I remember talking to him and he was really struggling. He was actually trying to get, you know, his proverbial affairs in order. And he was starting to give back things that he had borrowed from people. Also look out for things that are consistent sad or distress, distress postings on social media. Things like, peace out, I'm not going to be here much longer. I don't want to do this anymore. You know, maybe some emojis that are just consistently sad or they have tears streaming down their eyes. Self-destructive acts. So things like there might be a young person who's starting to either hurt themselves by uh, using self-mutilization. They might be cutting. Um, they might be headbanging. They might be doing things like burning. Um, so we want to make sure that we express our concern around that and maybe even get a pediatrician involved. Unexplained anger or aggression. We talked about that a little earlier. And some students or kids that just start running away. So we know fight, flight, freeze, right? Those are the three things that happen when we're in a crisis. We want to either fight, you know, what's going on. We want to get away from it or we just freeze. So some kids end up running away. And so we ask, we actually really look at that. What are they running away from? Situational cues, or clues, sorry, and risk factors. Uh, so sadly, I, I have a feeling that if I pose the question, can anyone just kind of quietly think of something that happened in their own childhood that was an embarrassment or humiliation. Sadly, most of us can probably dig that up pretty quickly. The reason why we probably remember that is we remember that feeling of everybody was looking at us or maybe it was something to do with our family. Um, our brains are not equipped at that point in time to really handle that kind of feeling, that overwhelming, now everybody knows I'm going to be, you know, the laughing stock. So what I try to do is that if a student or a young person or a child experiences embarrassment, so recently someone shared that their child went back to school, they're, you know, in third grade, and because the school was new and they hadn't been there before, they actually didn't know where the bathrooms were. The teacher just kind of forgot that that student was, or the students were normally in a classroom that had a bathroom, and they ended up, you know, kind of peeing their pants, which was a huge embarrassment. So I usually just make sure that there's somebody that checks in with that child and supports them. Family history of incarceration or legal history, I just kind of try to say to people that, you know, everybody's family is different, and they might be used to somebody in their family having legal, you know, challenges, but it might not be the social, the, the family norm and to make sure that we're checking in on somebody. Um, if your child has a change in school performance, so this is not necessarily just being expelled from school or having disciplinary action at school. It could be your student normally is an A student and they slip down to an A minus and that's not like them. So I always just make sure that we're checking in about any kind of change in school performance. And then I also put on there fired from a job. So I don't know about you, but um, I know a number of us had a job when we were in high school or when we were younger. And for me, that was a social outlet. And I, I remember, you know, sometimes people either moving or you know, changing to another store location and you kind of lost that connection. So I always just say, you know, what's their connection with their job after school? Because they might have more social interaction and acceptance from their after school job than they might feel like they do during the school day. Recent disappointment, there might be family issues, maybe feeling alienated or rejected by someone in their family, recent uh, or chronic homelessness, and then loss of any major relationship is really, really important. So when we look at risk factors and we look back at cases where a young person might have died by suicide, we often see that there was a significant loss in their lives. It might have been a breakup of a boyfriend, boyfriend, girlfriend, girlfriend, boyfriend, girlfriend, girlfriend, boyfriend. Uh, it might have been a loss of a significant family member or caretaker in their life. It might have been a loss of health. They might have had a health status change. 
loss of housing or loss of their community. Some young people lose their connection with family if, if they're immigrating. Uh, we also just really want to always explore, have there been any recent losses or the anniversary of any kind of loss of a, a family member or a friend. We also want to make sure that our kids are safe both physically and emotionally. And when there's incidences of bullying, that's considered a risk factor, it's considered a trauma, and it's considered violence. So we want to make sure that that student or that young person is being supported um, where both at home and also if this is happening in another environment like school. Um, and coming out or a time of experience for an LGBT youth is also very important, which we talked about earlier. We just want to make sure that they're being supported. And I'm going to jump back. So I use the word supported a lot. What I mean by that is that there's somebody in their life that is empowered to check in on them. And sometimes it might not be us. We might be not necessarily too busy, but we might not be present. It's just important to find somebody who does have that relationship with your child or with that young person who does have that space to be present, to check in on them and see how they're doing and to make sure that person ultimately would be the one that would probably refer them if they needed help. So I just, I always say there's no judgment if you're ever not the person that can just jump in and be a part of the solution for whatever's going on with a child, just get them to somebody that can. And then being aware of physical warning signs. This is really important. So just like I said earlier about the dogs and our pets, I think we all know when our pet is hungry or if they want to go outside or if they want to play. The same thing with people is that our bodies start to advocate for needs that we are not getting emotionally, meaning that we might start to lose our appetite or you might want to overeat, you know, carb load. We might start to have changes in our sleep patterns or our sleep hygiene. We can't fall asleep and stay asleep or we're sleeping all the time and that's not, you know, the norm. Somebody starts to get chronic headaches or tummy aches or menstrual problems or they might start to self-harm. So these are just ways that the body advocates for an emotional need when it might not be met. So a lot of times this is probably a call to the pediatrician or in school settings, it's usually a referral to the school nurse. So now we're going to talk about if a, if a young person is directly going to tell us that they want to kill themselves. They're going to use very direct language. And I was on in a training recently with a, a former principal, and that individual said that that was the type of language that she heard because she realized that kids thought that she was really busy and that they had to get her attention very quickly. And they also, she ended up saying that they, they knew that she was... Um, and she used another term, but she's no nonsense. <laughs> so they knew that she took things very seriously. So they might say, I wish I were dead. I'm going to commit suicide. I'm just going to end it all. If such and such doesn't happen, I'll kill myself. Now, some of you at, at home might be saying, you know, that last one, that just seems like it's kind of like, could be like a threat or, you know, they say that all the time. Again, I always revert back to, I take everything you say seriously and then reinforce that. And there's a chance that they say something like that and they're just really frustrated. You're sending a message just by stopping and saying, remember, I take everything you say seriously. And right now you're talking about you want to kill yourself if such and such doesn't happen. What's going on? Let's talk about it. Oftentimes kids will say things indirectly and they might type it, text it. You know, I just want out. I don't want to be here much longer. Pretty soon you're not going to have to worry about me. I just can't take this anymore. I can't take much more of this. So I usually just say, I take a breath. These are, you know, these are not, we can answer, we can respond with an, an open-ended question. doesn't need to be a yes or no at this point. I usually just say, what do you mean by that? What's changed for you lately to make you say it? 
what do you want out of? And then, um, so adolescents or young people, it's all about them, right? So you want to refer it back to, I saw you Monday and you were, you know, having a coffee from Dunkin' Donuts and you were hanging out with your friends, socially distanced with your mask on, except if you had to sip your coffee and you seem really happy. And now it's Wednesday and you're, you're really struggling. What's going on? What's changed for you to say that? It also sends the message that you're paying attention because you're using examples of what you saw on Monday and now Wednesday, they're a hot mess and you want to know the story. You're interested and concerned and you want to know what's going on. These are just some ways that we don't su suggest that you ask the question using this type of language. It just doesn't really validate them. And a lot of times if you're not feeling so great, you already feel pretty stupid or have low self-esteem about something, this can actually just kind of make you feel even worse. I kind of refer to it as the Friday afternoon I'm ready to go home, my keys are in my hand question, you know, I don't have to worry about you till Monday, right? You're gonna be good, you're not gonna kill yourself. It just doesn't really validate or open up conversation with that young person. So here's the good news. All of you being on this call today and attending, whether you're a parent, a community member, someone that you know works in education or social worker or somebody that works in recovery, family members, just by you having an interest in this topic, you are a protective factor for a young person in your life. Resiliency. I never underestimate the power of resiliency. A pet, family supports, huge protective factors. So whatever we as clinicians are asking, you know, um, doing an intake or, you know, want to work with a, a child and their family, we always ask, what are the supports? What are the things going well in this child's life? Where are they connected in the world? Uh, treatment, best friend, medication, community supports, anything in school that's a structured activity where there's supervision and there's a way to connect or a mentor or any kind of positive uh, adults that are with that child throughout the three stages of their development. So advice from kids. This is what they said when we did focus groups. Just keep your eyes and your ears open. Listen to us without judgment, no matter what we tell you. And this is the part where I always say, you might not be that person right then that has the bandwidth to listen without judgment and that's okay. We're not judging you. There just might be somebody else who might be able to be present in that time for that person. Know your kids, know, know all the, you know, the little things about them, all the special things about them that make them your kid. Try to create a supportive environment. Sometimes that's just through text. They might, you, you might know that your child is better communicating with you via text or over Skype or over, you know, I don't know, post-it notes that you leave in the bathroom on the mirror. Um, and to just be there. Sometimes they're not ready to talk, but they just need that physical presence. You might just be sitting with them on the couch and you're watching something on Netflix and just your physical presence says that you're showing up for them. Um, and not assume it's a phase. I think this is hard to do because, you know, we, we probably just as humans try to reflect on our own experiences in life and make an association. But one thing they say is that, you know, this is this is unique to my experience. It's not a phase. It's something that I might not be growing out of. And so to just try to take that seriously. And that they might not talk to us because they don't assume we understand. So I never say the expression, I understand. Because I don't. I really don't. I might want to. And I might think I do a little bit. But I don't because everybody's experience is completely different. And then always, just like we all probably like, you know, the end of the evening news, as my husband knows, is my favorite part because it's the, the part where they give this cheery, really, you know, inspiring message, inspiring story. I love stories and so do our kids. They like positive stories about something that might have happened to somebody and now they're doing better in the world. And they really like it if we kind of phrase some of those experiences in a story. So here's the point where we might be listening to somebody 
we're giving them our first full attention, but we might start to need to do some persuading. So I don't know about you, but you know, oftentimes our kids might need a, a little nudge to take some action. So we, we're gonna kind of use all of our different tools in our toolbox, our kid parenting toolbox to persuade them to get help with us. Obviously, because they're minors, they're going to get help with us, but I think it's really important to involve them in the process of what that's gonna look like. And I also, at the end here, I always say we use we language, come with me, we're gonna get you some help. We're in this together. We're part of a team. So who are you gonna call? So 911, absolutely. Um, I do get questions about 911 sometimes about what that actually looks like. It looks like a well check. It looks like, and in some communities, both regionally and nationally, that actually sometimes means that a social worker will go out on the call with the officer to do a well check on the child at their home. And then also the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you can press one if you have a veteran in your life uh, that is thinking about suicide. It goes directly to the Veterans Crisis Center. And then locally here in Rhode Island, we have a mental health uh, emergency intake number, Hotline for Children in Emotional Crisis, which is done through KidsLink RI, which is part of Bradley Hospital. And that number is 1-855-543-5465. One thing that I tell parents about this line is that, yes, it's confidential. It's handled by clinicians, well-trained clinicians, and you don't need to have medical insurance in order to use this. Uh, This is for people who are uninsured, insured, underinsured, any parent can call this number any time of day and they will reach somebody that can listen to what might be going on and that can help them triage or take the next steps of what might be appropriate to get your child help. And then in the school environment, we often train administrators just on the training that you just had now. Uh, the school social workers are all trained, student assistants, counselors, the school psychologist, the school nurse, and the guidance team. So these are all people in your school environment uh, that you could check in with and ask them. Also, if they're in a virtual environment now or in person, what's the protocol? You know, if I'm worried about my child, who should I call to, um, to talk about some help that they could get even in school or out of school? We have a, a few visuals here on what I talked about earlier. We want to limit medication. So this is how to quote, suicide-proof your home. Uh, it's just suggestions on limiting the means that might be in your home. Uh, creating or having an ongoing supportive listening and asking relationship with your child and to remove and lock up firearms that might be in your home. So you are on your child's helping team. I always say things like you're not alone and then who else is on that helping team? So you know what it's like to feel like you're holding somebody up by yourself. And then oftentimes we have other people in our lives that are also struggling. So we we kind of do this exercise with kids where we have uh, one student being held up by one person and then that person gets kind of tired and then we call in a friend or we call in a parent and now all of these people are helping to hold up this, this one person. So I always say get others involved. Ask who else could be of help. Maybe it's counselors or a coach or a mentor or a therapist or other family, extended family. And work as a team. So a lot, And a lot of times parents say to me, you know, should I feel comfortable sharing this type of information with the school? You know, is this, is this going to be helpful or is this going to hurt them and, you know, maybe make them stand out because they're struggling mental health wise? Um, it would be really important to, you know, make that call and let them know that, you know, there's something going on with my student. I want to make sure that they're supported in school. Um, and yes, those are trusting relationships for sure. Um, but building a relationship with maybe one person on that team might be really helpful. And then supporting uh, re-entry. So if your child does go get care, maybe in a hospital setting or outpatient, it's really important to maybe not 
um, to kind of stagger that re-entry either into school or into their, you know, their chores or their daily activities, kind of don't put them back into everything all at once because it can be really stressful and overwhelming. And then um, just kind of in closing, there's a lot of responsibility with social media and there's ways that we can anonymously report suicidal content on Facebook and Twitter and the other uh, social media platforms like Snapchat. Uh, you can actually go into the search engine, which is that little magnifying glass that's on the the top of all your different platforms and on your phone and you click on that and you just type in suicide and these types of little forms will pop up and you'll be able to type in the person's name, the URL, which is that browser, that long string of numbers and letters that are at the top of your browser, and then a picture. Maybe they posted something. You can click on browse and attach a picture and then you press send and it's the same for all the platforms and it goes to a special team in California that manages these types of uh, reporting and then it goes automatically to the local police department to go to the home or wherever that person is to do a well check. And lastly I just wanted to note the Lifeline Facebook page to ask people to either like it or feel free to um, tweet out hashtag be the one to um, and then the Last resource that a lot of students say that they actually take down and they put in their phones is the text, the crisis text to talk line, which is you text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741, and that connects that person with a crisis counselor. I've tested it many times I um, just to make sure, and the response time is immediate, um, and they are connected with somebody who's trained. And sometimes students or young people like the text, the, the kind of privacy of text versus talking to someone on the phone. So I just offer that as a resource. And I just wanted to say thank you for everyone who joined us today. I, I know that this is a topic that um, is probably uh, sensitive to a lot of us who may have experienced the loss of someone by suicide or you have someone in your life or other people in your life that you struggle with their own mental health. But just by being in this training today, you are helping to uh, make this a conversation that's more comfortable and reducing the stigma around suicide. So thank you very much. This is where I'll open it up to any questions. Sarah, uh, could you field some questions that might come in from the chat? Uh, Lee, uh, somebody private chatted a question, wants to know how has COVID impacted societal attempts and ideation in Rhode Island? Have you seen an increase in suicide attempts? So, uh, um, so yes, we have seen an increase in attempts. Uh, Bradley Hospital specifically uh, has still you know, been very busy throughout COVID with uh, young people who have either attempted or are struggling significantly with mental health who have benefited from either being hospitalized or from treatment. Uh, so yes, we have seen an increase. I will say that springtime is the highest time of year for suicide, which we talked about earlier. And COVID actually kind of the onset of COVID was at the beginning of spring. Um, so we also see that correlation, but I think we'll, we'll have a lot more information over the next year. Anybody have any other questions? Somebody thanks Lee for putting this together for us and thank you. And somebody else wrote again in the private chat that it's very encouraging to know that caring can save a life. That's something we all. Yes. And, and just um, for whoever put that in there, thank you. Because actually ACT is what we teach students, which is acknowledge that a friend is struggling, show care and concern, and tell a trusted adult. So yes, just by an extension of showing that you care and you're concerned is absolutely a protective factor in an intervention. So thank you again, everyone. Have a and great rest of your day. Thank you, everyone. Be well. Thanks for listening. To find more content like this and see the video version of these webinars, please see the links in the description below. If you like this one, 
please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.